couple of years ago, I was with a friend from Tennessee, and he shared with me a little update on some of what's going on in his life, including life together with a group of men that he's been meeting with for years. He said, Pat, I have an interesting topic for us to consider. One of the guys in my group has built a uh, security bunker. And I said, oh, like, like when a tornado is coming through and might need temporary shelter for you know, a few hours? He said, no, no, no. Um, a, a security bunker that they will stock with food enough for at least one to two years, electric generators and power sources so that they can maintain their life, the opportunity then also to seal themselves out from the rest of the world, and to do all of that in regard to what they anticipate to be some great coming societal collapse. Uh, they'll also have uh, weapons and security systems. I said, now, weapons, now, that's for going out and hunting? He said, no, 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 that's for killing people who might try to get in and harm them or take the food that they have, all for the sake of feeling safe. Hmm, I said. And so the two of us then launched off into a long conversation about those things that threaten us, about fear, and about where safety actually lies. What threatens you? I step back into my childhood with those kinds of questions in mind, and I think of the things that threatened me then, and they seem to be so much more simple then. Things like uh, bullies in schoolyards or in the neighborhood. Um, things like when my older brother and sister would really get bugged at me because I came in and messed with their stuff. Those are the kinds of things that in my sheltered, wonderful life at that time, uh, those are the things that threatened me. But in a bigger scale, there were other things that I recognized were threats to me. Because I lived in a time where we heard things about uh, crises, international crises, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, national times of crisis related to the assassination of key political and societal leaders like the Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King. When race riots and tensions were so very real in our community and around the country, and then moving into my adolescence, I remember those things that threatened me then. The sense of what happened in the 60s and 70s that rocked us were things like Vietnam and the reaction to that conflict. Uh, genera generational rebellion, the threat of annihilation that actually came and that was hanging over our heads both here and around the world related to what was termed the Cold War and that actually still today puzzles me. While I know the reason it was termed that, how could the possibility of conflagration from nuclear attack be anything related to cold? The threats of my adult years have become much more complex and more real. We now fear almost everything associated with government, for instance. Somebody is always out to get us or to steer the country in the wrong direction. We know that there are fundamentalist and madmen threatening us from outside our borders and inside our borders. National and global changes become, uh, bring threats to our economy and to our global connections. World affairs shift every single second, even during the next 15 minutes of this message and moving to the rest of worship. In the, in the sense of all of that happening, investment accounts can be mismanaged, educational systems can fail us, families break apart or are filled with distrust, 
Hatred can spew out anytime, anywhere. Indifference trumps almost everything. Friends turn into enemies. Co-workers and fellow students turn against us and actively work against us. Football coaches abuse children. Pastors step off moral cliffs. Thieves break in and steal. Bombs go off in sidewalk cafes. Shooters stand at the front of movie theaters. Siblings siphon off family assets. Neighbors verbally abuse us. Threats are seemingly everywhere around every turn. Now, before I have us all curled up under our chairs in little balls, cringing because of the nature of our world and our lives, let me turn our attention back, just to relieve that slightly, back to the time of David. We've been following his story this summer. Sure, he was a man after God's own heart and was the greatest king in the history of Israel. But this does not mean that his life was easy. From the moment he comes on the scene, there's been trouble. As the youngest of his family, caring for the sheep of their flocks, he encountered lions and bears who menaced him and his family's economic welfare. Goliath menaced him. David's brothers uh, ridiculed him. The king himself tried to personally kill David on several occasions. And then when that failed, he sent his army out to kill him. He and his men were constantly on the run, and eventually when he became king, he led his army against enemies on all sides for years and years against all threats. There were plots against him from his own trusted leaders and even from among some of his own children. David faced continuous threats both without and within from sworn enemies and from those who were closest to him. So where did David find safety? Take out your Bible, or the one that we provide for you under your chairs, and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22. When we come to 2 Samuel 22, we are very near the end of David's life at this point of the story. His people have known him for decades as a man of valor and power. Though there were threats to all, and all around him, and all through the life of his history, there were also any number of accomplishments, things that he did for his people. And David has proven himself to be the ultimate survivor. His life now is drawing to a close. And he looks back here at the beginning of chapter 22 in 2 Samuel. He looks back over that whole life. And he decides to do what he has often done to express his deepest feelings and his deepest thoughts. He writes a song. At this juncture of his rule... He might be like other world leaders, other world leaders who take time to, at the end of their life, give some kind of communication about what their rule has been. Now, those particular leaders around the globe at any time or any place would probably start by reviewing their personal traits that help them to rule well. They would affirm perhaps the platforms of their party or the people who were in allegiance with them. They would recount all the good things they did for their country. And they would seize the moment to tell their story in the most favorable of ways in order to set that story in the public mind firmly, someone who needed to be remembered. It's natural to want to focus on all of those things as a leader. And that song surely would have played to the Israel pop top 40 of David's day. But... 
it becomes startling for us to take a look at this song, starting in verse 1, and I want to read for us the first few verses of that chapter. Remember, this is God's holy word. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The song continues, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. But right now, let's simply remember that every time we open up God's word and read from it, he intends for us to gain understanding by the power of his spirit. We pray that's going to be true for each one of us here this morning. So in this last song, David, unlike other leaders of nations, chooses to focus on God. His, the start of this song of praise is something that points out who God is. He identifies God as his rock, his fortress, deliverer, shield, horn, stronghold, refuge, and savior. You can see it all right there in verses three and four, 2 and 3. He identifies these things about God, and it is an amazing list. Just any one of these metaphors could be taken alone and fill up the next 15 minutes of message. But David puts them all together, almost like he's, he's opening up a fire hydrant of identification of who God is. It's hard to take it all in. But we're going to be doing that this morning for just a few minutes. And David lumps all of this together in short order, and it can feel just overwhelming to us, overwhelming even to the sense of who is God really? But first, let's look through the whole song before we come back to just this list from these two verses. If you'll follow along and just scan through this chapter with me, you're going to see that starting in verse 5, David recounts his distress and his plea to God when people and events threatened him. He writes, the waves of death swirled about me. And then in verse 7, he says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. Starting in verse 8, he relates God's response to his plea with a series of metaphors, including smoke rose from his nostrils. And in verse 9, excuse me, in verse 14, God thundered from heaven. By the time we get to verse 20, we find a beautiful statement about God's provision he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David then goes on to recount his own walk with God in verses 21 through 25. He describes God's faithfulness starting in verse 26. And this all leads to verse 33, where David begins to recite all he was able to do with God's help. The song reaches its crescendo of praise in verses 47 and 50. The Lord lives, praise be to my rock, exalted be God, my, the rock, my Savior. Therefore, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. When David could have done like other leaders, he may be like us, and simply bragged at the end of his life about his resilience against all odds 
and then listed his personal strengths. He instead turns the spotlight fully on God. Coverage of the 30th Olympic Games has provided for us example after example of men and women who, with all of their training, all of their strengths, and all of their skills, have faced down those weaknesses and then also faced down their competitors. They persevered through all it took to get to the games, and perseverance is still required during the games. They must maintain their focus at all times while in actual competition. In order to give their best, in order to do that in every way possible, they must keep their weaknesses in check and must face their competitors with confidence. How many times have we heard that word, confidence, in the coverage of the Olympics about a competitor? How many times have we heard the word focus as they also report on their achievements? David makes it abundantly clear that his focus is God. Look back again with me now at verses 2 and 3. Here is this rapid-fire explosion of metaphors for God. Rock, fortress, deliverer, rock again, and it's a different Hebrew word than the first one. And then followed by shield, horn, stronghold, refuge, and savior. At first glance, some of these seem to be more than a bit repetitive. For instance, the two uses of words for rock. But then, fortress and stronghold and refuge all seem to be pretty much the same thing. And um, then we have some that sound very different, like shield or deliverer. And what in the world do we make of the word horn? What is this list? So let's take a look at that just a little more closely. The word for shield is the Hebrew word for a small, protective, round shield carried by a soldier into battle by which he can uh, be able to uh, withstand the blows of the enemy. Now, that word also means anything which provides protection for someone who's being threatened, like a high rock formation that one could get up on. The word horn can be a horn of an animal or a corner of an altar. It's used that way in different places in Hebrew writing. But it is also the word for a high rocky peak or a mountain. The words for fortress or stronghold can certainly mean a man-made structure, but also they carry with them the meaning of a strong position of being up on a rock or a rock formation or up on a tower of rock. Even the word savior can be applied to what brings safety, of course, and what provides rescue, like clambering up on a high rocky place to avoid the enemy. In the course of all of these things, there is then this deep, resounding evidence of testimony from David, using all nine of these words together to be able to share that as a powerful unit, they describe, <coughs> excuse me, they describe that God is our high rock, fulfilling all nine of the, meaning, of the meanings of those words. God is our safety. Joe Mikowitz is a certified battlefield guide at Gettysburg Civil War Battlefield. He's also a former executive with the Social Security Administration. A few months ago, he spoke at a conference for business leaders and corporate executives. 
He made presentations to them, and Dennis Brosnan of the firm Yellow Park Garden was, among the, was in the audience. Uh, Dennis provides these words related to what Joe shared at one point of his presentation. Joe described that when the cavalry division arrived in Gettysburg that was under the command of General John Buford, arriving the day before the battle was engaged, General Buford immediately recognized the importance of seizing the high ground just south of the town of Gettysburg. The army that held this position would be in a position to effectively control the overall strategic context of the battle. Their adversary would have to bring the fight to them uphill against all odds across fences, streams, boulders, and other obstacles. And the holder of the high ground would be able to see the events unfold in front of them, giving them precious extra time to make adjustments in the heat of the battle. Brosnan continues, Joe spoke of how great leaders recognize that the high ground is the position that confers strategic advantage, whether in battle or in business development. And as a result, great leaders insist that their organizations constantly seek to identify and take the high ground. In all of the records of warfare, from war that was primarily fought on the ground, the concept of high ground has been important. Through the course of my lifetime, we've known that to take on the effect of where air power is, and now strategic space power, always seeking to gain the highest ground possible. David's high ground was God. Joseph Carroll, a 17th century English nonconformist divine, makes a telling differentiation when he writes, it pleased holy David more that God was his strength than that God gave him strength, that God was his deliverer than that he was delivered, that God was his fortress, his shield, his horn, his high tower, than that he gave him the effect of all these. He goes on to write, it pleased David and it pleases all the saints more that God is their salvation, whether temporal or eternal, than that he saves them. The saints look more at God than at all that is God's. Though David's song has plenty of examples of what happened as he lived with God as his security, there are never guarantees that with God things will turn out the way we think they should. We may not even feel strong or happy or affirmed. The way before us may still be filled with difficulty, some of them seemingly overwhelming. Circumstances and results may not turn out right at all. But what Carol affirms is what David knew. Our circumstances are only lived in too well when we fix ourselves firmly on who God is and how God does things. Let me repeat that. The important thing is who God is and how he does things. David looked back over his whole life and his last song directs us like a laser to God and to God alone. Look at verses 31 and 32. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? 
And who is the rock except our God? With God as his high rock, his place of safety, what is David moved to do? He is moved to do the very same thing you and I should do. David praises God. In verse 4, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. In verse 47, the Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, the rock, my Savior. And in verse 51, therefore I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. We praise God when we affirm who he is, our rock, our place of safety. All this begs four questions. Is God your rock? If not, what will it take for you to yield to him and stand on him? If God is your rock, do you trust him no matter what comes against you? And will you praise God with every breath you take. There is a national organization that provides carefully screened professionals in settings around the country to whom young people can turn when trying to resolve difficult, threatening situations that they face. These trained resource people are located in schools and fire stations, libraries, grocery and convenience stores, public transit stations, YMCAs, and other public buildings, all of which display a yellow and black diamond-shaped safe place sign. Teens in desperate need can find help in 12 different places in the state of Indiana. I'm glad the Safe Place Network exist for young people in times where they need immediate crisis help. Where is the ultimate help found? It is in the safest of all places. We need to climb up onto our safe place who is God the rock, the fortress, deliverer, shield, horn, stronghold, refuge, and savior to whom David gives praise. And so I invite us, as we come toward the end of this worship, to stand with David on God, who is our rock. Let's pray. God, thanks for giving us this incredible picture, this picture that comes through the song of David, to help us know that you are the rock. Help us. Help us, O oh God, to recognize that no matter what happens around us or what we struggle with inwardly, that you are our safe place. Help us to trust in you and to live for you, counting on you being our shield and defender, our stronghold, our tower, our fortress, our savior, our deliverer. Thank you. Thank you for this song of David. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.